exactly like the most spiritually moving of the things that you'll ever hear me talk about, but uh, on the uh, just the, the, the raw sort of understanding how the Bible works side, I think it's actually uh, going to be quite informative for us. What we're talking about uh, all of this summer has to do with the four Gospels and how they interrelate with one another. And last week I gave you the idea of what's called the synoptic problem or the synoptic puzzle, and that's the issue that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke overlap so much that we know there has to be some kind of genetic relationship between or among them, since there's three of them. Um, we, we know that somebody copied somebody, and the only real question then to deal with is, well, well who was it that did the copying? And I want to emphasize again, it has nothing to do with an issue of plagiarism or it was inappropriate for them to have copied. This is just the way that ancient authors did things. It's totally appropriate for them to have copied. Our only question is, who did the copying? And one of the things that's so nice about the, uh, the synoptic puzzle, once you start to, to work it out, is you know, I, I gave you my illustration last week about the, uh, uh, the eagle has landed, right? And so with our three different examples there, you know, first they just paraphrase, then they have the same exact quote, and then they have the same exact quote with the same narrative around it. Well, once you've gotten to that point, you know they've copied, but some of you will have seen the great movie, The Right Stuff. It's a wonderful movie. I, I love, uh, you know, I, I love flying and I love astronaut stuff and all of that. So it's a, it's a great movie. It's um, just a wonderful job of, of blending the humor together with, you know, the seriousness of what was going on. There's a particular line that happens in the movie where the Russians have once again gotten somebody, you know, either up into space or in orbit or something like that ahead of the United States. And so one of the reporters sticks a microphone into the face of the, the guy who's directing the program, and he says, well, well what do you think about the, the Russians getting the first man into space? And he replies back, and it's a, it's a clever reply. He says, well, the question is, going, who's going to be the first free man into space? Now, if you look at that, what he's done is he's taken the guy's quote, and he has subtly altered it, well, maybe not so subtly, altered it by sticking the word free in there. You can tell a world about this person's beliefs by his insertion of the word free. And that's the way the synoptic problem works, is that when you take the Gospels and you line them up side by side, the things that they add or the things that they take out are incredibly indicative about what the beliefs are of the particular authors who were doing the, the modification of this. And so that's why the synoptic uh, puzzle or problem can be so informative for what the gospels, uh, the gospel writers' particular beliefs are. Now, if you find one, that's not probative. What you're looking for are patterns of additions or subtractions because the more that you have of these, the more confident you can be that this isn't just happenstance. This is something that was intentional by the author. So the question then becomes, if Matthew and Luke are copying Mark, what do they do with their Markan material? What do they do with the stuff that they inherit? And that's what we're going to walk through today, is what does Matthew do, at least to get started with this, what does Matthew do with the Markan material that he inherits? He's got special Matthew. That's this, just the probably oral traditions that Matthew had received, things like the Magi, Pilate washing his hands, the death of Judas. Those are the sorts of stories that only Matthew has. 
Then you have his Q material. That's the sayings material that he got apparently from a written source. The reason I say it's probably written is because Matthew and Luke have the same quotations from Jesus. Now you might look at that and go, well, but we talked last week about how we can all you know, end one another's sentences because of all of these quotes that are out there, but there's a trick involved. Jesus spoke Aramaic. The Gospels are written in Greek, and they agree in Greek. In other words, these are sayings of Jesus that almost certainly had been translated into Greek before Matthew and Luke got them. So they're not independently translating Aramaic sayings from Jesus. If they did, they would translate them differently. Because, I mean, you know, every time you read a, a work that's in translation, it's a little bit different uh, than the others that are there. And if they're going to be so similar, it means that they inherited something that was already translated. So probably written in that case. And then they're going to inherit Mark. And what do they do with their Mark and stuff? Well, one example of what they do, and I've got this on your handout there, is that if you read Mark's gospel, nearly every sentence seems to begin with the word and, and he peppers in the word immediately, almost like it's a nervous tick uh, that he has. He just throws it, and then, and then, and then, everywhere. Matthew says, no, Mark, Mark improves on Mark's Greek. God bless him. Now, look, his Greek's better than mine, but Mark's Greek is the worst in the New Testament. Uh, when you read Luke, uh, for example, suddenly you go, wow, we are not in Mark anymore. It's this eloquent kind of, you know, four-verse-long sentence that starts Luke's gospel, whereas Mark would just go, and then, um, and then he just plunges into it. Matthew's going to improve that. A second thing that he does is that Matthew is going to take the tenses in Mark and change them. When Mark writes, he almost always writes in the present tense. And it's a very kind of colloquial way of writing. In fact, it's the way that you might tell a story about something that happened to you. So if I were telling a story, I, I could say something. To, so I go to the store, and I look up on the shelf, and a can falls off, and it hits the floor. In other words, it's, it's very vivid. It's also very kind of, you know, well, I guess colloquial is a decent word, but what it really is, it's not all that elegant. It's the way that you tell a story among friends. It's not the way that you would write Churchill's History of the Western, you know, the English-speaking peoples. What Matthew does is he takes those present tenses and turns them into past tenses. Now, one of the things you may never have noticed before is that your translators of the Bible do the same thing. Mark has 151 present tense verbs in his uh, narration of Jesus' life. Your translators do not keep them as present tense. They switch them all over to past tense. Some of them tell you that they're doing this. There'll be a note at the beginning of the, your Bible or maybe at the beginning of the New Testament. Some of them actually italicize the verb in Mark that they have changed over to past tense. Most of them just translated as past, even though it's not. It's a, in the same way that they refuse to translate the word immediately every time, they refuse to put it in Mark's original tense. Of the 151 present tenses that are really past, Matthew changes 130. Luke changes 150 out of 151. Somewhere he is up in heaven right now going, how did I miss that one? Um, you just know that he's upset about having done it. So he changes it to a more elegant kind of style there. I'll give you an example. In Mark chapter 1, 
when Jesus is going to uh, you know, begin the temptation in the wilderness, the way that Mark says it is, and immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. The way Matthew puts that is, then Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. So it's a more elevated kind of style. A, a third thing that Matthew does in terms of style is he supplies antecedents for all of these confusing pronouns that Mark has. So where Mark has he and him and they and them, and you're, you, you have to kind of piece together who exactly is he talking about at this point, Matthew will say, Jesus, and sort of solve the dilemma of the paragraph and make it easier for us to read. Uh, in, uh, for example, that story where Jesus uh, is uh, confronted, well, not confronted, but uh, met by the leper who says, if you choose, you can make me clean. In uh, Mark 1:44, it says, and he says to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. When Matthew has that ex exactly uh, the same line, he says, and Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Now, already at this point, I think we can, well, I don't know, at least in my mind, there, are, there is another view of how the Gospels interrelate with one another. What I'm presenting to you this summer is called the two-source hypothesis, and that's where Mark and Q are the two sources. There is another view that's called the two-gospel hypothesis, and that's where some scholars think that Matthew wrote first and Luke copied from Matthew and Mark copied from both. I simply am incapable of understanding how this one works. Matthew, and particularly Luke, they write in such wonderful Greek that it doesn't make any sense to me. It's like a reverse proofreading, that we take a perfectly good style in Luke, in fact, the most elegant style in all of the New Testament, goes, well, we're going to fix this one, buddy, and you need some more immediately's in there. Now, I'm able to make fun of my own southern accent because my credentials are I was, I was born, you know, over on the west side of Birmingham. I grew up in Pleasant Grove. These are my people. It's, it doesn't make any sense for me that these quite elegant, grammatically sound documents would be reverse proofread into, into a kind of pidgin Greek that Mark has that is needlessly, um, you know, inelegant if he's working with a source that, that actually is quite good. So that, that's my, my feeling on it. Um, I, some of you know Dr. James Strange, who is in our department. He holds to the other view. Dr. Strange has forgotten more about the New Testament than I could ever hope to learn, and I find his, you know, uh, his subscription to this view absolutely just astonishing. So um, he and I, we, we, every once in a while, we'll talk about it. I, I don't understand why he has that particular view, but I'm with the majority on this one. All right, so some other things that Matthew does, uh, Matthew and Luke for that matter, though we'll focus mainly on Matthew, is there are some places where Matthew is going to correct Mark for certain perceived inaccuracies that are in Mark. And I, I've got a couple of them here for you. Uh, let me show you one or two. If you take a look at the handout that you, uh, you got there, notice how uh, in this particular, our first passage here where it begins with Mark 6, Mark says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known, some were saying, and then it goes on from there. Uh, where did our handouts end up? Because I think we have some people that talked about all that had taken place, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that. So I've just given you a little snippet in there, but I've underlined what the issue is. Mark says King Herod, Matthew and Luke both say Herod the Tetrarch. Now, it's a minor difference, but it is a difference, and it's, 
Well, I, I, there's no other way to put it, but one of them's right and one of them's wrong. When Herod the Great was king, he was, in fact, King Herod, and he ruled over the entire land of Israel. He's a, you know, an astonishing character. One day you'll come to Israel with me, and I'll walk you around. You, just, you wouldn't believe the, the, the thumbprint that he left on the land of Israel. He was, well, he's a scandalous, terrible human being. He is perhaps the greatest architect in the entire ancient world. It's, it's quite astonishing to see all of the things that he, that he did. It's, it's, it's really something. His sons, not so much. They just were ineffective in terms of how they ruled. And eventually Rome became frustrated enough with them that they demoted all of them. And when they demoted them, they said, okay, we're dividing the country up into four parts. And each one of you can rule over one-fourth of it. Well, except for the main part, we're going to rule over that one directly. In fact, they put a governor in there in charge. You know the name of this governor, Pilate. Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor that they put in to rule over the section from Caesarea, which was the main city, over to Jerusalem, which was the main Jewish city that's there. The other guys were demoted to be tetrarchs. You know, you can see right in there, tetra is the word for four, and then arch is the word for rule. So they're rulers of a fourth. They're no longer, and Rome was very particular about this, they're no longer recognized as kings. After all, that's why Rome killed Jesus. When they put above the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, they're not recognizing him as king of the Jews. They're charging him with having claimed to be king of the Jews. Rome is very particular about who gets this title. Well, these guys get demoted. And so when Mark puts King Herod, Matthew and Luke corrected. It would, and it coincided with the platinum jubilee of Queen Elizabeth, right? And so everybody was there and they you know, were able to take part. In fact, you may have seen, if you watched any of the, uh, the stuff that was there, the, the president of the, the, of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, he actually read scripture at one of the, now some of y'all just went, in fact, I'm looking over here, I see a mouth that is just agape because I said the president of the United Kingdom, that was a good look, uh, the president of the United Kingdom. Of course they don't have a president. It was the prime minister. If someone from the UK came over here and said, hey, what, what's, what's the name of the y'all's president, uh, or I'm sorry, y'all's prime minister, hopefully we would be kind and generous, say, well, well, our president's name is, and kind of gently correct there. Now, they have a very similar role. You could almost say that in the, in the government, they're the same, but one of them's right and one of them's not right. Much like, do, do I have any folks from Louisiana here today? What, what county might you be from? Except it's not Watchtower County, is it? Parish, exactly. And so you don't have counties in Louisiana. What you have are parishes. And so if you say, well, what county are you from? You, you notice how he kindly didn't correct me and say, you know, I'm not from a county. You know, he, he, there you go. There you go, exactly. Um, and so it's that idea that it's not that it's a huge difference, but one of them's right and one of them's not. And so Matthew and Luke, they correct the part that's wrong there. Let me show you another one. Look at the next example I've got here. Uh, in Mark 2, this is the story about when uh, the disciples are walking through the fields and they're picking heads of grain on the Sabbath and eating them. It says uh, he entered the house. This is when Jesus is saying that it's okay. 
and it says, He entered the house of God when Abiatar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it's not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he gave some to his companions. Do you notice when you look at Matthew and Luke? He entered the house of God, and it leaves out when Abiatar was high priest. And then Luke's version, he entered the house of God, and he leaves out when Abiatar was high priest, and there's a reason for it. There was a high priest named Abiatar. He just wasn't the high priest when that particular event that Mark alludes to happened. At that time, the priest's name was Ahimelech. And so it's the wrong name for the high priest. So what Matthew and Luke do is they just omit that particular line in there that's perceived to be inaccurate. Let me show you one more. Look at uh, Mark 7 verses Matthew 15 and Luke 11. It says, um, this is the part about when the, uh, the disciples are going to eat without washing their hands. It says, now when the Pharisees and some of the uh, scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of the disciples were eating with defiled hands. And I read that when I, I think of like Boy Scout without washing them. Well, that kind of explanation also creates uh, additional questions, right? So you don't wash your hands and, and that equals defiled? I mean, that sounds like a, a pretty strong kind of characterization. So Mark explains. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they don't eat anything from the, uh, from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups and pots and bronze kettles. And then he goes through the rest of the story. Mark has gotten very close, but he has also slightly missed it as he gives this explanation. When he says, for the Pharisees, he's right on target. When he says, and all the Jews, that's where he's gone astray just a little bit. The things that Mark is describing are the things that set the Pharisees apart as Pharisees. It's what set them apart from the rest of the Jews who were there. It would be a little bit like if I said, you know, I, I have a friend who comes over from a foreign country, and he says, could, could you explain football to me? And I say, oh, absolutely. See, what happens is that, um, you know, you, you've got uh, four downs at a time to, to try to make 10 yards, and if you can make it all the way down to the end zone, it's a great thing because you make it down there, you score a touchdown, and all of the fans will yell, War Eagle! Now, some of y'all are out there with, with, with defiled thoughts at this moment, saying, well, I, I, I don't think that all fans say War Eagle at that moment. I, and see, that's, that's what Mark has done here. Auburn fans say War Eagle. Other fans say different things. Pharisees were the ones who duplicated all of this temple life with all of the ritual washings, and that's actually what set them apart from regular Jews that were there. Now, do you, do you notice that Matthew and Luke, they both omit Mark's parenthesis that's there. This actually is an important verse or section of verses right here for telling us more about the Gospels than we might realize. It does tell us something about Mark. Mark's probably not Jewish. Mark is almost certainly a Gentile. He's writing as someone about Judaism rather than writing as someone who is Jewish. And that's not surprising because Mark's not one of Jesus' 12 disciples or anything like that. Um, the other thing it probably tells us is that Mark was not writing to Jews. 
because he's having to explain this kind of practice that's there. And as he explains it, he just gets it slightly wrong. It, this is, I went to a Jewish university. My friends at this Jewish university were pictures of tolerance and kindness with all of the, the things that I got wrong when I was up there. I, I remember a particular moment when um, I, I had gotten up there and we were having a Shabbat dinner, Sabbath dinner at a friend's house and um, I, I saw someone, he wasn't really a friend, he was just somebody that I knew from one of the, the similar programs to where I was at Brandeis and I said, hey, I, I saw you last Friday night jogging, uh, you were going through Arlington and I waved but you know, you must not have seen me and so forth and he said, it wasn't me. My apologies, I didn't mean to accuse you of being physically fit or concerned about your health. And so, what had I just done? I had accused him of jogging on the Sabbath. It was him. But <laughs> whether it was him or not, you know, it was like, hey, saw you last Sunday morning out on the eighth hole. You know, it looked like you had a, a pretty good approach shot there. You know, it's, it's the priest in Caddyshack who has the best round of his life and can't tell anyone because he did it on Sunday morning. It's, I, I, I shouldn't have said it, you know, but I wasn't thinking about it. I, I, one of my professors who had uh, also gone to Brandeis, he, he made similar kinds of mistakes. He, it was the, uh, the wonderful scholar of blessed memory, Nachum Sarna, and Sarna came into class one day and he had, had a little bit of a beard that he was sporting. And my professor, who was then just a, a doctoral student, said, Dr. Sarna, that looks very distinguished. I, I like that. And, and Dr. Sarna was, you know, being very kind. Well, thank you. Thank you, Brian. It was only after class that one of the other students had to come and talk to my uh, professor-to-be that, well, he wasn't doing this so he had looked distinguished. Someone in his family had died, and he was sitting shiva and was not allowed to give any attention to his physical appearance during this time. It can happen the other direction. I was at a, a dinner one time, and there was a Jewish lady who was interrogating a Christian lady about how one is supposed to do Christmas. Now, those of you who are Christians in here will automatically recognize that there's a verb in there that doesn't make any sense. Write that down. Well, I mean, you can get up later if you want to, or well, well, no, I mean, you could you could do the breakfast, and then and and you could just see the exasperation on the face of the woman who was Jewish because like, no, you're not understanding what I mean. I mean, how are you supposed to do it? Well, that's because in Judaism, there's a way that the holidays are supposed to be done. In fact, for Passover, you have a book. <laughs> it's called a Passover Seder, meaning order. There's a particular way things are supposed to be done. When you're looking at things from an outsider's perspective, you can see how Mark could do this. What's interesting is, if Mark's not Jewish, Mark's not one of Jesus' disciples, probably tells us that the authors of Matthew and Luke are also not among Jesus' disciples. Now, for Luke, that's no surprise, right? Because Luke's the, you know, of all of the, you know, the names of all the gospel writers are just from church tradition, not actually mentioned in the gospels. Luke is the one that I would most be inclined to think he's probably Luke the physician. Matthew, though, I, I'm highly skeptical that he's actually the tax collector that's there. And the reason is because, let's say that Matthew were one of Jesus' disciples, why would he draw upon Mark, who wasn't, to tell the story of the Messiah whom he had followed around for three years? It doesn't really make sense that he would do that. So Matthew is probably somebody, a lot of scholars would place Matthew up in the town of Antioch um, and say that that's where he's writing from. He's clearly a learned Jewish scholar. 
uh, as he's writing, but probably not Matthew the tax collector. And that doesn't have anything to do with whether his reports are faithful and so forth or whether he's authoritative as scripture. It's just a matter of trying to figure out who is who in terms of the authorship of the Gospels. John is probably a source for the author of John as opposed to the final author of John. We'll talk about that more when we get there. There's a, a, a curiosity about John's gospel that John uh, is never referred to by name, and yet the person who almost certainly is John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And some people will look at that and say, well, see, John didn't want to mention his own name and so forth. <laughs> and my thought is, so instead he refers to himself as then Jesus' favorite. <laughs> you know, that's, that's great. I mean, that, that's some humility there, John. Doesn't that sound a little bit more like something that maybe the disciples of John would have said about the person, you know, who was their theological leader than what John himself would have said is, is my thought. But we'll talk more about that when the time comes. So uh, one of the things that you can see that Matthew does uh, for Mark and Luke does as well is this issue of correcting in certain places, you know, subtly for accuracy. A second thing that Matthew does is that Matthew tends to abbreviate Mark's material. Now, it's interesting, Matthew is nearly twice as long as Mark, and Matthew copies virtually all of Mark, and yet, God bless him, well, Matthew's one of my favorite gospels, he's in the top four, um, he, Matthew is not a good storyteller. Mark for all of the, the crudity of his Greek, is a wonderful storyteller. Matthew, not so much. You can see, for example, look at the, uh, the example I have for you there at the bottom of the page. Uh, this is the story of the Gerasene demoniac. Look at the way Mark does it. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He had lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him any anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and, as I've mentioned before, slashing himself with stones. And look at what Matthew has. So fierce that no one could pass that way. No one's making a movie out of Matthew's version. I mean, the, Mark's version is, looks like uh, Stephen King put it together, and then Matthew just says, scary, and that's all he puts. He's just, he abbreviates quite dramatically the material that's there in Mark. Look, uh, flip your page there and look at another example. This is the story of when they bring the paralytic to Jesus. Mark's version, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. When they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the man on the mat on which the paralytic lay. It's, it's I mean, this was a story made for flannel graph. I don't know about y'all, but back in the day when I was in Sunday school, my, my faithful teachers had the flannel graph, and it had the little palm fronds, and they would take them, and they would separate them, and they would lower the guy down on the mat. I see some, some, a lot of faces out there that know what I'm talking about. Nobody tells Matthew's version of this story. 
After getting into the boat, he crossed the sea and came to his town, and just then some people were carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. There's no crowd. There's no roof. They don't dig. They don't lower. They don't, you know, all of that is, no one, in the history of doing the Gospels, no one has done Matthew's version unless they just happen to be preaching through Matthew. If you're going to tell this story, you tell this story from Mark. Mark is much more vivid uh, in the way that he tells his stories. Matthew tends to abbreviate things, which makes the next little quirk in Matthew uh, inexplicable. And I love the Bible. I've devoted my life to it. I, I think I carefully read for you the story of the Gerasene demoniac and said so fierce that no one could pass that way. If you look at that one a little bit more closely, it says that when he came to the other side to the country of the Gerasenes, two demoniacs coming out of the tombs met him. They were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Mark has one, Matthew has two. Go back to that back half again there. Look at the, uh, the next story, Mark 10. They came to Jericho, and as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Well, look at Matthew's version. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. It's exactly the same. In fact, the verbiage is the same. We know that they're you know, genetically related to one another. But Mark's got one, and Matthew has two. And in these cases, Luke also has one uh, that's there. What's even more odd is you'll notice that I have another passage that's there. It's another Matthean passage. One of the things Matthew often does is he'll tell the same story twice. This is one of those examples. There are five or six different examples in Matthew where he'll have the same story, and he'll just tell it two different times. I don't know why. Now, you might look at it and say, well... Maybe it was really two, and Mark and Luke just mentioned one. Let me show you one more where I don't think we can really do that one. Look at this last example on your page there, Mark 11. This is the triumphal entry. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. I like to pause at certain moments in these stories. And see, our, our problem is we're too close to the text. Pause and think about what Jesus just told the disciples to do. Go steal a donkey. <laughs> you're, you're supposed to pause at that moment and go, wait a minute, Jesus. <laughs> I, that's not ours. What, what, what are we doing? Now, technically, Jesus owns all of the donkeys, so he can't steal from himself. But, you know... Clearly something supernatural is going on behind the scenes here because when he tells them to go do this, he anticipates that there's going to be questions. He says, if anyone says to you, what the heck? Why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here. I think they're going to buy that one, um, so be careful. Uh, it says uh, they, they went away and found a colt uh, tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, 
what the heck? What are you doing untying the colt? They told them. And how did that sound when the disciples said it? Um, the, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back. <laughs> These are not the droids you're looking for. I mean, it's that kind of moment. And, and the people go, oh, well, okay. And they let them have it. So you can tell that, there's, you know, that, that God is orchestrating what's going on here. In fact, there's another little clue to this in the fact that it's a colt that had never been ridden. And yet Jesus is going to sit right on it and ride it, or you can ride it. It's got to be broken. And Jesus is not going to have to break it. There's, there's clearly a lot going on behind the scenes. They told them what Jesus had said, and he allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Look at Matthew's version. When they had come near to Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anything says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. What does that mean? I mean, did they take the colt and put it on top of the donkey, and then Jesus sits on top of that? Is he like Gunther Gable Williams, and so he comes in with a foot on each one of them? That would be a pretty cool triumphal entry, but I don't really think that's... None of my students have the foggiest clue who Gunther Gable Williams is. It's good to be in an audience where somebody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, it, uh, you know, I, I, my joke is, what is this Kareem Abdul-Jesus? He's so tall that he can just, you know, stretch over both of them. How does this work? Well, we don't even really know how he's supposed to be riding both at the same time. Now, in this case... Matthew's penchant for doubling things has accorded with the fact that he, he tends to really read prophecies very carefully. And so he's kind of overread that particular prophecy from Zechariah. When the prophet says, you know, he's going to come to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, what that second line is supposed to be is an appositional phrase clarifying what kind of donkey. If I say I'll, I'm going to pick you up in my truck, well, well it'll be a, 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 a bronze F-150. If you say, well, which one? Well, what, what do you mean, which one? It, it, the yeah. Well, I, I'm a guest speaker, so I'm not the right guy to talk to, but there might be somebody from the church that could point you in the right direction on that. So, um, so what, he's, what he's done is instead of reading it as a donkey, a colt, he's turned it into two animals. Well, why would Matthew fall into that trap? Well, because he tends to double things is the reason. All right. Well, all of those, I think, are fun little quirks that we have in Matthew, uh, things that he's doing far more important than the, the sort of minor details of how Matthew adjusts his mark and material is one of the keys for Matthew is going to be he's going to present the disciples and Jesus in a much more idealized way than Mark does. 
So when we were talking about Mark, one of our themes was the disappointing disciples. God bless them, they just can never seem to get it right in Mark's gospel. When we read Matthew's gospel, it's not going to be that way. In Matthew's gospel, the disciples are going to come across much better than they do in Mark's gospel. And if you'll turn to that third page of your handout, I'll show you some examples of this. Remember that passage from Mark 3, we talked about it a couple of times, where Jesus' family thinks that he's gone out of his mind. It says, then he went home and the crowd came together so that they couldn't even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying he's gone out of his mind. And we, we talked about that. How, how does Jesus' family think that Jesus has gone crazy? Matthew and Luke copy virtually the entirety of Mark, and both of them leave that line out. I think it's because Matthew and Luke found it implausible. We were talking about that at the end of our, our time a couple of weeks ago. Wait a minute. Mary and Joseph think that Jesus has gone crazy? How is this possible? I'm not sure Matthew and Luke thought that that was possible. And so they just leave out altogether this suggestion that Jesus' family thinks that he has gone crazy. Notice the, the next line. There's actually something about family in this one, too. Remember we were talking about Jesus going back to his hometown of Nazareth, and there the, the people are going to reject him, and the way they talk about him is this, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, which is a real dig at Jesus because you don't refer to people or you don't refer to men in that day as their mother's son. Well, look at the way Matthew's line puts it. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? In this particular passage, he's not the carpenter, the son of Mary. He's the carpenter's son, the son of Mary. That's a, a change in there. And it's not that Matthew's denying the virgin birth. I mean, Matthew's, you know, one, along with Luke, one of the two authors that presents the virgin birth to us. Uh, but this is the way he puts it. Notice the other little line that Matthew leaves out. You notice in Mark where it says, a prophet is not without honor, except in their hometown and among their own kin. Matthew leaves out the and among their own kin in there. So it seems like in Mark, even Jesus' family, at least certain parts of his family, seem to be disrespecting him. Matthew leaves that particular line out. The disciples never seem to understand what Jesus is doing in Mark's gospel. In Matthew, they regularly understand. Notice, for example, do you remember we talked about the parable of the sower, that, that pretty simple parable that's there, and the disciples are just dumbfounded by it. They have no idea what's going on, and, and so Jesus is like, if you don't understand this one, how are you going to understand the more advanced parables? You, you look at Matthew, it says, blessed are your eyes, for they do see and your ears, for they do hear. Mark's ends with their not understanding. Matthew's ends with Jesus pronouncing a blessing on them because they did understand. You remember the, the whole one about the leaven of the Pharisees where Jesus says, you know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and the disciples think that Jesus is mad at them because they didn't bring any bread? It says, uh, becoming aware of it, Jesus said to them, why are you talking about having no bread? <laughs> do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? If you have, uh, do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember? Jesus, you could tell, is becoming exasperated with the disciples. Same thing happens in Matthew, but notice the extra line that Matthew then has. Verse 12, then they understood. 
that he had not told them to beware of the yeast of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, I think this is a, a place where we have to kind of pause and consider the question of who's right. And I don't know that it's exactly an either or fact that initially, at least, they did not understand. Mark wants to emphasize that they don't get it because that's part of the theme of his gospel, saying to us, don't be people who fail to get it. Take that extra step. Look again and figure out who Jesus is. Well, that's not Matthew's theme. And so he clarifies, well, then they did understand. I'll give you an example of this where I think, you know, we have to decide maybe the truth lies in the middle between them. Remember we talked about how Jesus, he says, guys, we're going to Jerusalem. And when we get there, I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get turned over to the Gentiles. They are going to mock me, spit on me, flog me, and crucify me. And the very next line is Mark 10, 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said, hey, yeah, mm -hmm. hey, when we get to the kingdom, can we have the two best seats? They have completely ignored what Jesus said about his upcoming suffering and said, hey, can, can we have the two best seats in the kingdom? Look at Matthew's version. Same thing happens. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to get arrested, tortured, and killed. Then... The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. In my family, we, uh, my, my sons and I affectionately call my wife Sergeant Softy. I think I've told you all that before, that that's her name. In fact, she works with Honey's daughter, Christine, and Christine is not nearly as much of a Softy as uh, Michelle is, and so I had to come up with a nickname for her. It's the best one I've ever come up with. Corporal punishment. So <laughs> Sergeant Softy and Christine loves it. I mean, she loves the name, but those are the two. They work together, Sergeant Softy and Corporal Punishment. Um, and it's, it's just wonderful. Michelle, she's just, when she walks down the halls of Briarwood, the little kids just glom onto her. They just, they love her. She is all hugs and pats on the head. She's the sweetest person. When she, when she fusses at our dog Tallulah, it's no, no. You know, it's, it's just, that's just who she is. Don't mess with her kids. You mess with her kids, and she changes from Sergeant Softy to Mama Bear, just like that. We were, one of the moments my sons were playing t-ball, and, uh, you know, my son Samuel, God bless him, I, you know, he, he's more athletically talented than I uh, ever was, except in one area. When I was a kid, I was just lightning fast. I was the fastest kid in my high school. I was, you know, I ran track and football and all these kinds of things like that. And the first time that I saw my son run, I just went, what are you doing? You're doing that wrong. And he just, I mean, he could run all day in a shoebox. He just, he's so slow and it's just terrible. But, but it was T-ball. He hit the ball all the way to the fence. When he hit the ball to the fence and T-ball, it means you're going to get a home run. Because first, there's going to be all the little kids glomming, you know, together. They're like a little spider out there. It takes forever for the ball to get back, and then there are going to be three or four errors. And so Samuel, he's making his slow way past first, and the little girl that's playing first does this and blocks him. Now, in a just world, you know, an elbow to the throat would have gotten rid of that, but we had very strict rules in our family. We don't hit girls, um, and so we, we weren't going to have any of that. And so Samuel didn't know what to do. He got tied up. And it slowed him down so much that they threw the ball to second and got him out. 
The umpire called him out because he had not seen, I know this is a shock given the quality of T-ball umpires, he had not seen the young lady blocking him there. My wife leapt off of the bleachers, knocked over a small child, grabbed the fence, and began screaming at the umpire about how the girl got in his way as the rest of us went, who are you and what have you done with my wife? This was just not, don't mess with her kids. The kids that she teaches at uh, Briarwood as little transitional kindergartners are the redshirt freshmen that weren't quite ready for first grade. And so, you know, they, a lot of them have challenges and sometimes somebody will say a remark about how old they got held back and they're in TK and so forth. If you want to see Mama Bear's claws come out, talk bad about her little TKers because she is their advocate. Who's going to blame the mom for wanting to get good seats for their sons in the kingdom? In other words, they look a lot better in Matthew than they do in Mark. Now, imagine, because I don't think we have to attribute any sort of malicious intent to Matthew and Mark, but can you see how maybe both of them come from the same event from different perspectives? Maybe it is the mom who goes and talks to Jesus. And Mark says, yeah, it's the mom, but we know who was behind it. Let's cut to the chase, James and John. It was y'all that's the issue. Maybe Matthew's on the other side, and he's saying, I know these guys. That doesn't sound like the guys that I know. Maybe there were some mitigating circumstances, and so it wasn't them directly in that case. Let's look at this one last one to end. The different responses to Jesus walking on water. He got into the boat. The wind ceased. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. In Mark's gospel, it's quite comical. They think that Jesus has walked out on the water to the boat to fuss at them about the bread. And their hearts are hardened when he gets in the boat. How could Matthew's conclusion be more different? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you're the son of God. Now, these are quite different responses. Is Matthew's the response that says, well, maybe their hearts were hard initially, but this was also an important stepping stone people to make sure that they go that extra mile and look again in there. When we come back on next Sunday, we're going to look at another aspect of this idealization, and that is Matthew kind of gives us a different vision of Jesus himself as he's thinking in that longer-term view of who Jesus is. And so we'll look at some of the differences in the way that he presents Jesus. And then as our, our final thing we're going to do is step back and say, okay, we know what Mark was writing for. Why was Matthew writing? Because he wasn't just writing to copy Mark. He had his own ideas. What was his idea? What's his vision for what he wants his readers to do? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for even these differing perspectives on Jesus that we get in the Gospels. Lord, help us this summer, I pray, to be able to weave our way through them and gain a better vision of how the Bible presents your son. I pray this in Jesus' name.
we're actually supposed to post these, and so it would be good to have it right. Um, so, yeah.